message, I have two goals for you uh, as I'm speaking. The first goal is, is I really want to explain the Bible so you understand it, right? That's sort of the idea, is that you and I should be uh, uh, reading our Bibles all the time, and let's face it, there are some things about Scripture that you and I will read that will just go, I, I just totally don't get it. Daniel chapter 11 is one of those things, right? And so what I want to do today is I, I kind of want to give to you a little bit of clarity about what it is. So in order to do that, I'm going to briefly tell you what it's about, okay? So I'm not going to get into the details because the details are getting lost, but what I want to be able to do is explain it well enough and clear enough so that when you read it on your own, you kind of go, I, I, know, it, I know what's going on here, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing I, is, is I want to speak to your heart, right? As a pastor, my goal is not only for you to comprehend, but to actually uh, speak into the very core of who you are. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. Give me some grace, because this is out of my wheelhouse too. So let, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this good goodness and kindness today. Thank you for... Uh, your awesomeness. I pray that as we come to Scripture today, you would give me the right words to uh, clearly convey what your Word is saying, and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us today, this morning, in a way that, that would hit us where uh, our hearts are at this morning. In Jesus' name, the whole church said, Amen. All right, so the first thing I'm going to ask, or I'm going to do is, I'm going to tell you what Daniel chapter 11 is about. And what I'm going to tell you is that the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 is a detailed prediction about the story and the rise of an evil man named Antiochus, or Antiochus. This, of course, is a vision about the future and scholars believe that the thir first 35 verses are fulfilled 150 years after this vision was given, right? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you the story of Antiochus in a very brief way, and then I'm going to actually try to answer the question, what has Antiochus have to do with you and me? So the very first way I can do it is this. I've, I've tried to spell the story to three plot points. So if you want to follow along and take notes, these would be notes that I would ask you to take. Verses 1 to 4 in Daniel chapter 11 talk about Greece's power, rise to power and how it splits into four factions. Verses 5 to 20 talk about how two out of those four factions fight over control for Greece. And verses 21 to 35 Talk about how Israel suffers at the rise of Antiochus, who is one of the leaders of the faction. So let me explain this real quick. The first thing I'm going to talk about is, let's look at verses 1 to 4. Greece rises to power and splits it into four parts. So if you've been following along in Daniel, you know that the story starts out in Israel, that Daniel is born in Israel, he's born in Jerusalem, but he's born into a season where Jerusalem and Israel is kind of walking away from God. And so as a sort of way of punishing them, God allowed, lifts his hand of protection, and the king of Babylon comes and takes over Israel. Okay? 
So Israel, Daniel's in Israel. Israel's taken over by Babylon. Babylon is then taken over by Persia. And this is what the text says that I want you to hear. This is, this is really cool. It says this. It says in verse 2, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than them all. And when he has come, become strong enough, he will stir up against the king of Greece. Okay? Well, you know what is cool is that is actually fulfilled. Okay? Babylon falls to Persia, and we're going to see that history confirms that the fourth king tried to take over Greece but failed. The fourth king of Persia is a guy by the name of Xerxes. If you have been in church long enough, Xerxes should be a famous name to you. Someone tell me who Xerxes is. He's the king of Persia that is ruling Persia in the story of Esther. And what we know about from history is that he was indeed the wealthiest out of all four kings of Persia, and he did lead a campaign to overtake Greece, but it, is, but it ultimately failed. And what winds up happening is that Daniel predicts that a Greek king will rise up and overtake Persia. Look at what it says here. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall have great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided by the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity or according to the authority in which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, and he will go to others besides these. Bible scholars believe that this is a reference to Alexander the Great. He eventually defeated Xerxes, and Alexander had two sons, but they were both murdered, and the kingdom was divided into four, into four generals, okay? So just so you understand what is going on here, okay? Greece comes in, Alexander comes in and, and conquers the entire known world, which is all what you see highlighted there. He dies, and then it is split between four generals, and they all take different uh, areas, right? So one takes down south of Israel, and that's Egypt. One takes Syria, one takes a little bit, and there are two, uh, two west of that, or east of that, or sorry, west of that, I should say. So that's sort of what the first part is, okay? Is that Daniel sees a vision in his story about how Greece is split into four factions. And then we read in verse, uh, verses 5 to 20, that two of those four factions fight over control of Greece. And this is where people kind of, their eyes blaze over because there's so much detail and it feels like a soap opera, okay? So when you read this, it kind of, it just makes your mind blown because here there's, these, there's this king, he falls in love, they marry, and then there's this war between another faction and so he divorces his wife and marries the other one for political peace. He doesn't like that wife, so he divorces Mary's his original wife. His wife doesn't like that, and so tries to poison it. It's really complicated. Okay? It just makes your head hurt. So the best way I can describe it is to say that verses 5 to 20 are a detailed uh, prediction about the war between one of those two, those two out of the four factions. Okay? Now, why are there just... Now, why is it only two? Well, let me explain this real quick, okay? The first, uh, the, it refers to the 
glory of the king of the north and the king of the south. Okay? And why they refer to that is because Jerusalem is kind of stuck in the middle, right? So the king of the north, the Syrian Empire, fights the Egyptian Empire for control of who gets to say they're Greece. And in order to fight and have a war, guess whose city they got to go through? Jerusalem. So Jerusalem becomes the battleground for this kind of civil, cultural war with, with who owns Greece, right? And why does the Bible only focus on the two out of the four? Because Jerusalem is in the middle. And here's what I need you to understand that is kind of important to the story. Both sides, both the north and the southern kingdoms, were determined to spread Greek cultural, culture throughout the land, but they had radically different ways of doing it. Okay? Northern Greeks were cruel and violent to the Jews, while southern Greeks were accepting. For example, Polydemy II commissioned 70 Greek scholars to translate the Old Testament into Greek language. But here's what winds up happening, and I want you to just kind of put this in the pin in the back of your mind. But what winds up happening is Greek culture starts eroding away at people who want to follow God and the Jewish faith. For example, there are, there, there are stories of this. Greeks had this uh, thing called the games, the gymnasium games, in which they would do athletic uh, competitions naked, right? And so Jewish men who, who wanted to participate decided that they would not get circumcised, even though God told them to do that, for fear of everyone seeing that they were different. Okay? There were other things going on, it became more liberalized going on. And, and so what you start seeing is that the relationship between God and his people starts eroding away because of the influence of Greek culture. And then here, here's what happens that I want to I focus on here. Verses 21 to 35 talk about how Israel suffers at the rise of a man named Antiochus, or Antiochus. Okay. It says this in verse 21. Okay. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom no royal majesty has not been given. He shall come with power, he shall come without power and warning. At the end of verse 20, the northern kingdom won a battle against the southern kingdom, and Israel was under new leadership, under a man named Antiochus. And this began the decline, the decline of Jewish worship was about to take a sheer turn into terror. This set the stage for one of the darkest hours for God's people. It is fair to say that this leader would be considered the Old Testament equivalent of the Antichrist. He took it upon himself to name himself Epiphanes, which means one of the Greek gods. The Jews hated him so much they called him Epimenes, which means he was crazy. He was a bad man. Listen to what the text says. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and even broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time an alliance is made with him, and he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with the people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his, uh, his, uh, uh, his father's or... Uh, I can't say what, what is that? Nor his fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. 
He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for the plot shall be devised against him. Even though he eats his food, he shall break with him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their heart shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same time, but to no avail, for, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And I'm going to stop there. So here's what that means. This is a detailed account of how Antiochus wages war against Egypt, the southern kingdom, and wins. And that last part there, where it says, where it says, the king of the north will return home with great riches, and he will set himself against the holy covenant, doing much damage to continue. That actually happened. What happens is this, is he launches a campaign against the south, and he wins. And on the way back, he goes through Jerusalem, and he hears of a revolt. And here's what he does. In order to put the revolt down, he erects 80,000 crosses. Right? And crucifies over 80,000 Jews. Okay? I want you to think about that for a moment. Any number of loss of life is bad, but I want you to think about how horrific the Holocaust would have been. Up until this point, this would have been just as bad. Then in verse 29, I want you to see what he does here. At the time appointed, you shall return and come to the south, but it shall not be as the first time before. He's going to wage war against the south one more time. For, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be erased and take his action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So here's what happens. Antiochus goes the first time against the Polymenes. He wins, and he decides he's going to rage a second camp campaign. But this time, he doesn't win. This time, what winds up happening is Roman ships come in and scare him off. So he retreats. And as you can imagine, the Jews don't like him very much, right? So they're kind of happy that he lost, right? So what winds up happening is that when it says that he shall be enraged and take out his action against the Holy Covenant, this is what Antiochus does, okay? He makes it illegal for the Jewish people to follow God. He bans circumcision. You weren't allowed to own a Bible. You weren't allowed to practice any of the Jewish feasts or celebrations like Passover. And he sets up, I think I've mentioned this before, he sets up a statue of Zeus in God's temple. Okay? Now I want you to imagine for a minute how offensive that would be. There is a cross right up there. Imagine you come next Sunday, I take that out, and I put a big, massive Buddhist statue. How many of you would be slightly angry at me? <laughs> right? Yeah, you'd be slightly angry. Well, here, that's exactly the kind of thing he does. Sets up this massive statue, he puts a Greek priest in there to sacrifice to Zeus, and on God's holy temple, on the place where Israel was to put animal sacrifices, he starts sacrificing a pig, right? 
Daniel calls this the abomination that causes desolation. Okay? He did so many evil things. He slaughtered women and children. He slaughtered pregnant women. And all this took place before Jesus' birth. Before Jesus' first return. Okay? So, that's the story. <laughs> that's the first 35 verses. What does this story have to do with you and me today? Okay? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. Just like Antiochus, there is coming a wicked king inspired by Satan. Jesus said that Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. And that will be the intention of the final ruler of earth. Before the end comes, God, demonic activity will grow to a fever pitch. John describes this in Revelation 9. And there will be a great, great, great man who will be just as evil, or if not any more evil than what is than Antiochus. There is coming a persecutor of God's people who will make all others seem like a faint shadow. Daniel calls him the little horn. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. And, Dan, and uh, John calls him the Antichrist. Okay? Well, how do I know that that is what is happening here in this text? Because the next set of verses, scholars believe, describe someone else. Listen to what... Listen to what it says here. I know I'm getting really heavy, but just, just hear me out. I, I promise there's something in this for you. It says this in verse 35, 36. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming him to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only for a time until the wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for other gods of his ancestors, or the God loved by women, or for any other God, for he will, he will boast that he is greater than them all. Instead, he will worship the God of fortresses, the God of his ancestors never knew, and lavish in gold, silver, stones, and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign God's help, he will attack the strongest fortress, which is a reference to the temple of God, and he will honor those who submit to him, appointing him positions of authority and dividing the land among us. Scholars don't believe this is a reference to Antiochus. They believe it's a reference to a second person simply because this. Antiochus worshipped the gods of his fathers. He worshipped Zeus. But in verse 37 it says this person will not. It also says that he did not... It also says that this person will regard himself above all gods. We also know that Antiochus did not do that. And it also says at the end of Daniel chapter 12, which we will talk about next week, that when all this is over, the resurrection of the dead will continue. Antiochus, friends, I believe what is going on here is Antiochus is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. And here's what I'm trying to say to you when you read it and you're trying to understand this, this passage is that the first 35 verses act like a mirror. What is the function of a mirror? It's a reflection, right? And depending on, this might be a really bad analogy or an illustration, but depending on where you are in this room right now, 
Yeah, I can. It's reflecting something clear across the other side of the room. Okay, that's what Daniel chapter one verse thirty-five all the way to thirty-five is. It's a reflection of what we see on the other side of time, on the other side of the room. That you need to understand that past events in in this story reflect what could and might happen in the events leading up to Jesus' second return. How do I know that? Well, let me just uh, let me just uh, go through a couple reasons or a few reasons about how I know that Antiochus is a foreshadowing of Jesus' second coming. Number one, just like Antiochus, there will be wars and rumors of wars. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, when the end comes, you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. These things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, just like what we read in the text. Number two, just like Antiochus, godly people will walk away. I kind of skipped over it, but in Antiochus's day, he used flatterly to encourage people to walk away from God. Look at what Jesus says will happen during the second coming. Then if anyone tells you, he, there, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up. And great many signs will wonders, so to deceive even people who believe, if that's possible. Just like Antiochus, godly people will walk away. They will be a great sign of apostasy. Number three, just like Antiochus, someone will rise up and demand to be worshipped as God. Jesus, talking about this, says this in Matthew 24. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet about, prophet spoken about, about the object that causes abomination standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, all that stuff that you read about in Daniel chapter 1, that's going to happen. Something like that is going to happen on the heels of Jesus' second return. He says this, then those in Judea must flee. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into his house and back. Someone, just like Antiochus, will declare from the temple that he is God. Some Christians take it to mean that the temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt. Some Christians take it to mean that he will set himself up a church. Others argue that the Antichrist will establish his own temple. I'm not really sure. The text seems to indicate that he will set himself up against God and Jesus and demand that everybody worship him. He's not only just going to say that Jesus is wrong, he's going to say that atheists are wrong and every other religion that does not follow him is going to be wrong. This man is going to deserve, demand worldwide worship and allegiance to him. Okay. Oh. I think that that is very interesting because I think we live in an era where that could happen. Amen. And just like Antiochus, someone will up, rise up and persecute the people who believe in God. Amen. Says this, Jesus says, uh, <clears throat> speaking about the end, Jesus says this, Then those who in Judea must flee from the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into his house to back. A person in the field must not return to get his coat. 
How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or the Sabbath, for there will be greater anguish than any time since the world began and will never happen again. Here's the crazy thing. I know that that's still the future. Why? Because Antiochus does some pretty evil stuff. But can you imagine what World War I and World War II was like for Jewish people? Pretty bad. It's going to get a whole lot worse. There is coming a persecutor of God's people who will make all other persecutions seem like a faint shadow. And that's scary. But here's what I want to say. Here's, here's the part. You're like, Dan, okay, I get it. This is scary. You're scaring my little kids. I'm going to tell you that right now that you do not need to be scared. Amen. Amen. Because just like Antiochus, God will have the victory. Amen. And here's the part that's preaching. Here's, here's the part that I'm, I, that, you know, if, you, if you're looking for something practical to take home today, this is it. Okay? In the story of Antiochus, what winds up happening is that the people, Israel leads a three-year revolt and eventually winds up kicking the Greek Empire out of Israel, and they enjoy a brief period of, uh, of sovereignty before Rome comes in. Okay, And I just want to say that we celebrate that today, or Jews celebrate today, as the celebration of Hanukkah. So when you and I are celebrating Christmas, the Savior, when we're the arrival of the Savior into the world, Jews are celebrating that Antiochus was thrown out and that the light of God was brought back from the temple. That's what Hanukkah is about. Here's what I want you to get. Just like Antiochus, God will have the victory. Whoever the Antichrist is, Jesus will overcome him. Amen. And here's the thing that I really need you to understand. This is dark stuff. It's supposed to be really bad. We've been taking... <clears throat> It's been darker than the last two years, or September the 11th, or what's going on in the Ukraine right now, or World War One, or World War Two. It's scary, but I need you to hear this, is that Jesus is going to come and overcome it all. And I think someone is here who's standing, I think someone here needs to hear that, as God is standing for you. Every one of us, hear this very clearly. When we talk about end times prophecy, we can get caught up on the details about this or that or the rapture or premillennialism and all this kind of thing. But in the New Testament, whenever it was talked about about Jesus' second return, it was almost always in the context of speaking to Christians who were suffering. They were going through some sort of persecution. They were going through some sort of deal. They were they were they were like holding on for dear life. They were losing their businesses. Their wives, their children, they were losing their lives. They felt like giving up. And when that happened, Paul, or one of the apostles led by the Holy Spirit, would tell them about the return of Christ, and it would be worse. It would be bad. And he's saying it wasn't to discourage them or overwhelm them. It was to encourage them. It was to say, listen, things are going to get a whole lot worse, but don't worry, Jesus is going to make it all right, and so whatever you're going through right now, the pale pales comparison to that 
you can be taken to the bank that if Jesus can overcome the Antichrist Amen. in the end, he can over overcome whatever you're struggling with and all the suffering that you're going on. Amen. Okay. Amen. I need you to hear that. Okay. Because here's what I need you to hear very clearly. If you are faithful to God at some point in your life, you will experience some sort of suffering. Maybe your health will suffer, your relationships will suffer, your business will suffer, your family will suffer, your wealth will suffer, your sales will suffer, your reputation will suffer, your career will Something is going to suffer. Okay? And in that moment, you're going to feel like it's too much and you're going to feel like giving up. Some of you are here today, maybe you're watching online and you're here today and you're facing the most immense pressures of your life and you feel like it's all happening at the same time. There's a falling out with your kids, you've lost your income, or maybe a lifelong dream or marriage is on rocky ground and it's all happening at the same time and you're wondering if you could go on and one of the purposes of God telling us about the end times is to encourage us that even when things look bleak, it's going to turn out always. If Jesus can overcome the worst era of human history and oppression, he can handle whatever is going on in your life. Do you believe that? Amen. Uh, you're not going to be happy with that amen in a minute. You're going to wish you didn't say that. Because I'm going to ask you a question. Can you throw the question on the screen for me? Throw the other one on. Here's the question that I have for you today. This is the part that's practical. Are you willing to believe that God cares about your stress and your issue and has a better way of handling it than you do? Do you believe that whatever is going on in your life, God cares more about it than you do? Do you believe that he has a better way of handling it than you do? Let me walk you through a couple of questions to really gauge if you really believe that or not. I want you to think about whatever stress in your life is, whatever oppression, whatever suffering is going on, and I just want you to take one, one minute and ask this question. How would a person who respond, who would, re sorry, how would a person respond who did believe that God could conquer that issue? What kind of things would a person who trusted God do, say, act, joke about, decide, who believe that God cared? Okay. Next question. Uh, maybe go back to the other one. Go back to question. Oh, I missed that question. So let me ask you the opposite question. Okay. What, how would a person respond who did not believe that God cared about that problem? What would he do? What would she do? What, how would they act? What would they say? How would they behave? How would they spend their money? What would they feel? So now you have two. You should have a list. You should have an image of someone who trusts God in that situation and an image of someone who doesn't. So go to the third question. And my question for you is this. Which person are you acting like today? And the answer to that question 
will determine whether or not this truth is something that you own today. Jesus come, overcomes the worst of human history and human oppression. He can overcome what is going on in your life too. Okay. As we finish up the story of Daniel, we've been going through the theme that Daniel is about learning how to survive in a culture that is different than your own. We've been learning that when Babylon conquered Israel, God overcame that. When Persia tried to wipe out Israel in the story of Esther, God overcame that. When Rome came in and tried to crucify Jesus, Jesus was still left standing. When the Antichrist rise to power, Jesus will still be there at the end. Okay? I, want to, I want to let you know that God loves you and He cares for you. And He is in your corner. That God is not indifferent to the hardships you face or you might be going through right now. And I want to let you know that that is the secret as we write, write up Daniel about how Daniel is able to thrive in a culture that is radically different than his own, he knows that Jesus overcomes it. And because of that, that gives him the strength to face that, and I want to lift that with you today. God is not indifferent to your pain. Okay? I want you to take comfort in the fact that in the middle of your pain, he is there. If Jesus could conquer the worst era of human evil and oppression, that Jesus can overcome what is coming in your life. And that is why we celebrate communion. I'm going to ask those who are helping with us uh, to come up right now. Uh, communion, if you don't know, is a, is a practice that we hold here once, in, once a month at church. And it's simply this. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he had one last meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took the bread and he took the wine... And he asked the disciples to eat and drink the wine as a remembrance of Jesus' broken body and spilled blood for his sins. And so ever since then, the church in some form, in some way for the last 2,000 years, has been doing that. So as you take part of this, this is, this is your way of saying that I remember what exactly Jesus did to overcome evil. Overcome sin and overcome the stuff that has gone on in our lives. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, we come for you today, and we want to thank you that you are indeed the king that lasts forever. Kings may come and kings may go. Babylon comes, Israel comes, Rome comes, Canada comes, the U.S. comes, but they all come and go at the will of your hand. But we know that we follow a king whose kingdom will last forever. And we do not need to be scared to pray in anything that's dark or evil because we know that it is not without, it is not outside of your control to come against you. So as we take part of the communion today, God, would you remind us of that fact? In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen.